to Insurance Uncovered, the first podcast to bring you insurance news and an inside perspective from thought leaders in the property casualty insurance industry. Insurance Uncovered is produced by the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies. Hello, everyone. I'm Kathy Imus. Today, we're uncovering disaster mitigation. The NAMIC-led Build Strong Coalition hosts a forum to highlight mitigation opportunities following enactment of disaster reform. Plus, the cannabis industry gets some help from Congress. The new bill that does for insurance what the Safe Banking Act does for banking. And no longer an uninsurable risk. Swiss Re's Keith Wolf shares how new technology has made it easier than ever for insurers to enter the private flood market. On Capitol Hill, a bipartisan bill will ensure legal marijuana and related businesses have access to comprehensive and affordable insurance coverage. The Clarifying Law Around Insurance of Marijuana, or CLAIM Act, was introduced by New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez during a Senate Banking Committee hearing. The hearing highlighted the conflict between current state and federal legislation for cannabis businesses. Senator Menendez asked John Lord, CEO of LiveWell, one of the nation's largest marijuana dispensary chains, to explain some of the issues he's run into when trying to obtain affordable insurance coverage. Um, with regard to uh, affordable insurance, I think that's the key word that we need to take out. We do have uh, insurance. There's about two companies that we're aware of that are insuring. But just to give an example, um, officers and directors insurance, the maximum that we could get was um, uh, uh, $2 million uh, in protection. Um, and OK, um, that cost $100,000 a year per officer and had a deductible of a million dollars. So effectively, we got a million dollars insurance for $100,000 per officer. Mm -hmm. So um, extremely expensive insurance. Uh, with regard to regular business interruption insurance, things like that, um, the insurance is there, but again, um, incredibly low um, um, dollar values. So, um, you know, nothing that's really going to help the business uh, survive perhaps, uh, you know, some sort of business interruption mm -hmm. um, and high rates. So would a more stable and affordable insurance market uh, help you reduce your costs, expand your business and create more competition uh, and more competitiveness than black market marijuana? Most definitely, Senator. Mm -hmm. The Claim Act would essentially do for insurance what the Safe Banking Act would do for banking. Senator Menendez says without access to insurance products such as property, casualty, and title insurance, cannabis businesses remain vulnerable and employees, customers, and the community face safety risks. Businesses can also be denied bank financing if they do not have proper insurance. The NAMIC-led Build Strong Coalition brought together disaster experts to discuss how best to maximize the implementation of the Disaster Recovery Reform Act. Held earlier this week, the first in a series of forums focused on FEMA's Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities Grant Program. The program, also known as BRIC, will lead to a significant boost in pre-disaster mitigation dollars, funded by an amount equal to 6% of annual post-disaster spending out of the Disaster Relief Fund. States will ultimately be the ones applying for this money and working directly with local communities on mitigation planning and prioritizing projects to draw down disaster risk and loss. 
Homeland Security and Emergency Management Agency Director Chris Rodriguez urged those implementing the BRIC program to keep things flexible and simple. And now in this time of transition to BRIC, state emergency management directors can work with FEMA to ensure we prioritize increased flexibility, simplicity, and increased capacity for applicants and sub-applicants to improve the efficiency and impact of taxpayer dollars. Through the new funding, we can leverage flood mitigation assistance and other programs to support traditional projects, even as we innovate on the state and local levels to design programs that better fit our needs. Transitioning to BRIC provides us all the opportunity to further collaborate and ensure that all stakeholders at all levels are engaged and on the same page. Now we know that BRIC implementation is new and it's challenging, but the more we accomplish today and in the near future, we'll be better prepared when the next disaster strikes, because it will strike. FEMA is expected to put out formal guidance on the program later this year. In the aftermath of Hurricane Michael, the Florida Office of Insurance Regulation noted the state's private flood insurance market has grown 169 percent. Since 2017, 29 private carriers have written more than 62,000 personal primary policies in the state. As the market for private flood insurance continues to grow, the National Council of Insurance Legislators took up consideration of proposed amendments to the State Flood Disaster and Mitigation Relief Model Act during its summer meeting. NAMIC reinforced that insurers writing coverage for catastrophic perils such as flood need underwriting rate and form flexibility to ensure the products are written in a sustainable fashion. Some advocates for the proposed amendments maintain that more regulation in the marketplace will entice capital to come into the private flood market and that such restrictions are necessary to develop it. NAMIC maintains that such restrictions will hamper the private market instead of helping to foster it. Other insurers spoke in opposition to the proposal, pointing out companies need flexibility to innovate in this new market space. One insurer making a case for private flood coverage is Swiss Re. On today's Unscripted, our Chuck Chamnis talks with Keith Wolf, Swiss Re's president of property and casualty, about how improved flood modeling technology has made entering the market easier than ever. Well, my guest today on Insurance Unscripted is joining me on site at NAMIC's management conference here in beautiful Asheville, North Carolina. Keith Wolf, president of property and casualty for Swiss Re. Today we're going to cover several topics, but I thought we'd first talk about flood insurance. But first, let me say, welcome to Insurance Unscripted, Keith. Thanks, Chuck. It's wonderful to be here with you. Well, as I said, starting with flood, uh, and I think you're in a great position to talk about this, but we know, and we deal with it on the advocacy side, obviously there's a government program run by FEMA around since 1969 that is the NFIP. So working on that reauthorization, and we're not, at this point, I don't think we even need to cover that since most people are aware that we're in this period of short-term extensions and so but really just talk about the flood peril generally you know only one in six homes in the u.s has flood insurance and it's got a variety of challenges around it people either they don't know that they need it maybe because the maps aren't up to date something we're working on in public policy uh, others think their homeowner's policy might cover it uh, others think they can't afford it in some cases they're probably right depending on the policy and how much at risk they are uh, but we know it's a tremendously damaging, um, you know, peril and that it is causing uh, a lot of challenges in the insurance market, uh, even outside the government uh, flood insurance program. Um, 
you know, in terms of Swiss Re and your activity and some of the things I've seen you all research and write, um, you've done a lot of work on it. And so whether it's the insurability of floods in the U.S. and the need for the private market um, or other topics kind of related to that, let me just start with a broad question. How is Swiss Re working to fill that uh, kind of coverage gap that we, uh, that we see? Yeah, so thanks, Chuck. We've been spending a ton of time on this topic for the last oh, five or six years now. Uh, funny enough, we, we thought this was a huge problem and didn't have a really good way to solve it as an industry to be able to provide flood insurance protection to the greater community, both personal and commercial, until about five years ago, at least in our view. Uh, we actually had somebody inside our own organization realize that the modeling we were using for ourselves was something we could turn loose to the general public and be able to deploy private flood insurance products into uh, any space throughout the United States. And we've had some success with this, quite a bit down in Florida. Uh, that's where bigger demand is just because of the geography and, and the amount of homes down there that are susceptible to floods. But we really do believe that there's an opportunity here to close this protection gap uh, related to flood in the United States. Well, you mentioned you know, te technology and Swiss Re's own technology that you realize could be used in the market beyond just your proprietary use of the company. Uh, how is technology helping change you know, what is possible and maybe how the private market is developing? Yeah, so if you look back at uh, the ability for people to understand flood risk with maps, obviously the, the, uh, the beginning of this started with the FEMA flood maps, and then those have been around for decades, but they are difficult to maintain. They require a lot of extra work to update them, and now with the technology that's available through satellite imaging and some other higher-end technologies that have come uh, into the market in the last few years, we're able to update flood risk on almost a daily basis if we wanted to. And this has allowed us to basically better assess the risk, then obviously better price it and put a, a loss cost on it that we're comfortable with as an industry to be able to offer products that are, are good for the masses. You know, in the mapping, and this just came up in one of the sessions this morning, but you know, we think it's uh, unfair to consumers, uh, would-be policyholders, say perhaps buying a home, and they look at an outdated flood map, or they don't really have access to the information about flood risk, and they, or they even know they need to get flood insurance, but the, the indication they have of how at risk they are is a low premium, which may be kind of a government-subsidized, uh, poor indication of how much at risk they may be. So clearly the technology, particularly around the mapping, but that whole system of uh, giving the, the consumer uh, better access to information that can really tell them you know, how at risk they are of flooding. And so we have looked at some of the drivers as to why people are not thinking about flood risk and how they think about it, why they think it's something that uh, they should or should not pay attention to. And one of the things we keep coming back to is uh, we are confusing a lot of people by the vocabulary we use. You know, flood risk or is it water backup or sewage backup in a home? You know, if water's in somebody's house, and they've paid for an insurance policy, they expect it to be covered. Now, we all know it's not covered in a lot of situations related to flood, but that's something that we can solve as an industry that isn't around the technology. This is a huge education and awareness campaign that we can't do from the backseat as a reinsurer, but we're trying to push it forward into the agency community and have them understand, look, this is something that you should explain in simple language, and we're not very good at this as an industry, and we need to be better. Yeah, something about lawyers and uh, you know, <laughs> courts and regulators yeah. makes it hard to explain in clear terms. Sometimes. It does. It does. It's amazing. So we actually, it's funny, in some of these deployments that we've had where we're able to offer private products, we've actually started calling them water endorsements. They're not flood endorsements. They cover all water. And the funny part is, as experts in the industry, we know a lot of these water damage things are already included in a homeowner's policy. But some things like sewer backup, which we've always been able to underwrite, and flood, which we've 
just recently really been able to underwrite should just all be in there together. And we're trying to make it simpler for consumers to understand that. One of the areas we've been working in, and, and this gets to the kind of government piece where helping require private lenders to accept uh, private flood policies. Yeah. Uh, have you followed this or do you have kind of a sense of how that could make a difference going forward because it has been a problem in the past? It's been a huge problem and you know this is where you actually again confusing vocabulary or lack of education and this is awareness for actually the financing and the banking community who has relied for so long on the requirement being that if it's in a flood zone, uh, high-risk flood zone A, it needs a flood insurance policy that's provided by the NFIP program. And that was what everybody accepted for decades. And that's the only thing they accepted. And now that the litigation, sorry, excuse me, the legislation has turned over to allow for substitute uh, offerings that are frankly much broader and more comprehensive products than what the NFIP program offers today, it's just taken a lot of time to convince the banking community to be able to accept these things as really uh, suitable substitutes. And we're not there yet. It, it's still quite a struggle. Yeah, I think it will take time, but uh, I think we're, had a couple promising developments recently and uh, it should be better going forward. I like to see the, the, the federal legislation to clarify this has gotten a lot better. It's just I think that the bank, you know, the bank community's awareness of those changes and willingness to embed them in their own institutional processes, that's where we run into a problem right now. Right, and that will take time. So tell me about uh, uh, parametric insurance and its use in the flood market. Wow. Okay, so... <laughs> and you might even some little background on parametric and because uh, I think not all of our listeners would even have, um, you know, much of an understanding of that. But. Yeah, so parametric, we're talking about picking out a variable that's something you can objectively measure over time uh, about an event happening or not happening. So, for example, in flood, if you've got uh, sensors that would detect flood at a certain elevation and they're constantly there and monitoring and if they get tripped because water hits them you know there was a quote-unquote flood at that location that's the parameter is that flood device getting tripped or not it's black or white there's no coverage gray area on. coverage on coverage off exactly for that particular location and it usually gets quite specific with locations and we do the same thing with earthquakes uh, in California but with parametric products we've had again, a lot of education that we've had to go through to have people understand these can be insurance products if they're paired with uh, actual loss. So insurance versus derivative products. We don't want to produce parametric products that are seen as derivatives. It causes all kinds of accounting problems. People are worried about uh, basis risk or the ability to actually get paid when there's a real problem versus, oh man, I didn't have a problem and I still got a check, which is very confusing because these things can operate very differently. Um, in the flood space, we have not spent as much time on the parametric. Mm -hmm. uh, we spent much more time in California on the earthquake space with this just because flood sensors and a standard way to measure flood across a large geographic area on the ground is not really in place and it hasn't been to this point. But you see how uh, that tool could operate in the future around flood. Uh, again, sensors and policies and all that in place. Yeah, and if you had flood sensors, say, in everybody's basement of their homes, you know, installed the same way and measuring roughly on the same system, uh, that combined with what actual damage that was paid for when there's a loss in somebody's basement, that would absolutely work as a parametric product. And the nice part about these parametric ones is they require very little for adjustment. It either happened or it didn't, and then the money transfers. That's the one beautiful part about these. There's no adjustment process, the way they've been designed for the earthquakes. And you get the money in your account that day, and it helps people who need the money right then to you know, deal with additional living expenses or other things that are right then and current for them to have to deal with while the event is actually still going on for them. Great. 
Well, let's shift gears then, and thanks for all the, the discussion. Thanks for the thought leadership and the work Swiss Re has been doing around flood, but let's just talk the rest of the business, the general reinsurance market. Um, how's it look right now in terms of uh, our industry and, and kind of where we are here in June of 2019? So I, I'm starting to think I'm a bit of an outlier. I'm, I'm a very optimistic person, you know, and honestly I see from a property and casualty reinsurance lens that I get to see, I'm quite optimistic about where we are in the insurance space today uh, in terms of health of the business. Um, you know, rating environment seems strong. We're seeing a lot of of primary rate lift that comes through in almost every line and class of business. Some people would always love to see us be stronger as an industry, but I don't think we're in a weak position at all at this point. I think we've seen some of the events in the United States over the last several years with wildfires and hurricanes and floods test the industry, but the industry has come back quite resilient, and that shows that what we do for a living around here actually works mm -hmm. quite well. And um, I honestly, I feel really good that we're producing some great products like these flood ones we've talked about. And that opportunity to expand the insurance and reinsurance sector, that's really the place where we can all get excited about. You know, it's not about trying to compete for the same customers buying the same things for the same last three decades. Let's go sell them something that they don't already have that really does provide value for them. It's not about just growing our business, but actually helping society and closing these economic protection gaps. Mm -hmm. Something like flood. Something like flood. So, uh, <laughs> last question. Uh, what is it about mutuals that makes Swiss Re and others want to do business with uh, our members and our segment of the industry? So we have found that this, uh, this group of clients for us has been some of the most consistent and sustainable ones for us over time. You know, there's a lot of mutual insurance companies that are members at NAMIC, and we probably do business with, you know, 150 of them or so. This is a great group for us because we find that when you have a mutual mentality, it really is about the long term. We all look at things very far down the road. We don't want to trade year to year or quarter to quarter. That's not the way we want to look at our business as reinsurers and certainly not the way most mutual insurance companies look at their world. So that is a very nice way to enjoy uh, a trading relationship that we know needs to endure over you know, many, many years, not just the year we're currently in. And that's refreshing because I think we can provide a lot of value to these companies that uh, somebody with a balance sheet the size of ours can bring uh, you know, the, the knowledge and the expertise that these folks really desire, and, and we like to, to do that. Great. Manage for the long term, just like our members. Try to do that, my friend. So Keith, we've covered uh, insurance topics, but I want to talk about a really important topic that's really recent, and that is you were one of the leading St. Baldrick's uh, participants this year, you and your daughter, Helena. Um, you know, we have my own story around it with my son, Joey. I learned about St. Baldrick's like two weeks after he was diagnosed in 2005 in Business Insurance Magazine of all places. Uh, and I knew that in shaving my head and raising money for this cause that had just become the most important thing in our lives was something I would do. Um, but you come to it without um, you know that kind of story and with a daughter who is amazing because I've seen the video. So <laughs> Thank you. Tell us a little bit about uh, that and how you raised uh, $60,000, which is a huge amount for St. Baldrick. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. We were happy to do it. So uh, it actually started about um, three or four years ago. I was donating to somebody else who was participating in the shave. My daughter saw me online donating and asked about the organization. I explained to her what it was about and how fantastic it had and been. How about. old? She at the time she would have been six. Wow. Yeah, so she was just a lot of curiosity, uh, and she'd come back to it about every year. You know, because I find somebody to donate to almost every year, and she eventually said to me, "Maybe we should do Oftentimes this." Oftentimes, my head. So thank yes, you. <laughs> yes, well. absolutely. Now it's been fantastic, and. Uh, so it was probably last school year, the beginning of the year, she said, you know, Dad, I think I want to do St. Baldrick's this year. And I said, 
what do you mean you want to do St. Baldrick's this year? She goes, no, I want to shave my head to raise money for children's research for cancer. And uh, I said, okay, um, interesting, great. You know, I think that's wonderful. She goes, and you're gonna do it with me too, Dad. Okay, excellent, I love this. And now, you know, we embarked on this journey around October and she told me we weren't getting any more haircuts until March and that's exactly what happened. And she was such a trooper with this. She's uh, decided actually even this summer she wanted to keep it short, so she's had it shaved down two more times. And uh, she's just, man, a fantastic young lady, so I couldn't be more proud and we really had a great time uh, with the experience and obviously the fundraising we were very, very happy to see. Well, she is a uh, special uh, young lady having uh, seen the videos of your event, having heard her interview as you, as you built up to the uh, shaving, uh, it's just the sweetest, nicest thing, and clearly someone who is, uh, has a mind for helping others and uh, you know, even brought you into it, although I knew you were dedicated already. In fact, you know, our industry, uh, it was started by three reinsurance execs. You work in the reinsurance space. Uh, just on a bet, basically, in, uh, in 2005, it became a foundation. So it's been supported by our industry more than any other industry since day one. And um, thank you for joining us today, talking about uh, you know, issues ranging from flood insurance to reinsurance to St. Baldrick's head shaving. Well, thank you, Chuck. I really appreciate you having me. It's been a fantastic experience. On the next Unscripted, Chuck sits down with Larry Shaw, CEO of MMG Insurance. The company received NAMIC's Award in Innovation this year for its unique approach to addressing the insurance talent gap. Shaw shares his advice for attracting and developing young insurance professionals. And that's a wrap for this episode of Insurance Uncovered. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and as always, we hope you'll keep tuning in as we return with more insurance news and information on August 7th. If you have a topic or issue you'd like us to uncover, don't hesitate to let us know. You can always send us an email at uncovered at Until next time, I'm Kathy Imus. Have a great day.